All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. In my own Sri Padayana, Sri Prashtaya, Kuntala, Sri Mahatma, Vedanta Swami, Nityananda. Namaste, Saraswati Deve, Gorva, Vachanya, Sesasana, Vaskatali, Satana. Mandeham Sri Guru Sri Uta, Padakamam Sri Guru Vaishnavascha, Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sagana, Raganatam Gitam Sam Sajivam, Sadvoitam Sadvoitam Prijana Saitam Krishna Chaitanya, Sri Radha Krishna Pradam Sagana, Lalita Sri Vichaka Pritam Sri, Panchakalpa Chudishcha, Kripasandriya Vitam Sri Tinam Pavanivya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya In Denver, Colorado, we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 26, Fundamental Principles of Material Nature, Text 33. So these next verses are going to be discussing the gross, gross matter. So the previous verses were discussing subtle matter, false ego and the woes of nature. And now we're going to the senses and the sense objects. And there's going to be a discussion of each sense and sense objects and matter in its various forms. So this is actually quite interesting because there's not very many religious or spiritual philosophies in the world that have a detailed description of the material world. So first of all, most don't even have a detailed description of God or the spiritual world. And if you go to most religions and spiritual philosophies, they're, they have just very scanty descriptions of God, very scanty descriptions of the self, and often little or no descriptions of the world. But here we see that the Bhagavatam is giving us a very detailed description of the world. So why would we want a detailed description of the world if we're in a spiritual process? So that's the field where you are. It's like the battlefield. <laughs> okay, it's the field where you are. Well, hopefully it's not a battlefield. It's the field where you are. And why is it important to know the field where you are? So you can get out of it. So you can get out of it. You have to understand it in order to be able to get out of it. Can you be more specific? How does... Yes? How to utilize it for Krishna's service. Because our philosophy is a chintabedabedi tattva, that everything is both different and not different from God. So if everything's different from God, I can offer it to him, and if everything's non-different from God, it's offerable to him. I couldn't offer something to him that's not... Like Robert said, you can't enter into fire unless you're fire. So unless everything's ultimately spiritual, I can't offer it to the Supreme Spirit. But unless he's distinct from what I'm offering, I can't offer it to him either. Does that make sense to anybody? I can't offer food to you that you can't digest. I can only offer food to you that's harmonious with the nature of your body, right? Yes? Like some, like beavers can eat wood. But we can't eat wood. We can't digest wood. So if I offer a human being wood, it doesn't work. So if I'm going to offer God, the Supreme Spirit, something, I have to offer him something that is spiritual. 
This means that everything, sarvakami number one, everything is spiritual. But if everything is non-different from God, if God is everything and everything is God, how can I offer it to him? What am I going to do, offer you your finger? You know, offer you yourself? So because everything is also different from Krishna, I can offer it to him. Does this all make sense? Yeah. Most philosophies see one or the other. Either they see everything is God or they see God is completely separate. So in order for us to offer everything to Krishna and in order for us to get out of material entanglement, we have to understand the nature of matter. We have to understand not only where we want to go, but we also have to understand where we are. We talked about that yesterday, didn't we? Because if you want to get, if you want to go someplace, you have to enter your end destination and also your your, your present location. You have to offer, also enter in your start location. You can't tell somebody how to get somewhere unless you have those two things. You have to have another thing too. You also have to know what. So you have to know where you're going, where you are, and how you're going to get there. What's your transportation mode? Yeah. What vehicle do you have? So this, this knowledge of the material nature is telling us where we are and also telling us a lot about the vehicle that we have. You know, I was, I was really surprised. There's one a travel site that doesn't just tell you about flights. It tells you about flights, cars, trains, buses. So you enter in your, your start location, your destination, and it will tell you how to get there through a variety of different means which I found very interesting because sometimes you can save a lot of money going partially by train or partially by bus. So, but you have to know your vehicle. If you don't know your vehicle, right? if you're going to go on a train, it has to go on a train track. If you're going to go on a car, it has to go on a road. If you're going to go on if a boat, it's going to have to go on water. So we need to know something of our vehicle. Okay. So that's why we have this section of, of verses. That's why we have, the, we have huge portions of the Bhagavatam that are about material nature, correct? Huge, huge portions of the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita also. How many chapters of the Bhagavad Gita are about material nature? Six. Yeah, about the last six, basically. Okay, so we're on text 33. That's an A, by the way, it's not a U. Which one? Most of them. Anything that has a tail on it is an A. So the U's are handwriting. should have had you in my handwriting class when you were six, whatever this was. So anything that, it, that the only U, there's one U at the end that doesn't have a tail. All the other ones that have a tail that you might not be sure if they're A's or U's, they're all A's. Ardashrayatam shabdasya Ardashrayatam shabdasya Drastralinga Tomevacha Tanmatra Tancha Navaso Lakshanam Kavayo Vidu Arta Ashrayatvam That which conveys the meaning of an object That which conveys the meaning of an object Shabdasya Of sound 
Drastu of the speaker, speaker. Lingatong, Lingatong, that which indicates the presence, that which indicates the presence. Eva, Eva, also, also Cha, Cha, and Tatmatratong, the subtle element, subtle element. Cha, Cha, and, and Nabasya of ether, Lakshanam, definition, Kavayama, learned person, Vidhu, know. Translation Persons who are learned and who have true knowledge define sound as that which conveys the idea of an object, indicates the presence of a speaker screened from our view and constitutes the subtle form of ether. Srila Prabhupada's purport. It is very clear herein that as soon as we speak of hearing, there must be a speaker. Without a speaker, there is no question of hearing. Therefore, the Vedic knowledge, which is known as Shruti, or that which is received by hearing, is also called Apurusha. Apurusha means not spoken by any person materially created. It is stated in the beginning of Srimad Bhagavatam, Tene Brahma Radham. The sound of Brahman or Veda was first impregnated into the heart of Brahma, the original learned man, Avikavaye. How did he become learned? Whenever there is learning, there must be a speaker and the process of hearing. But Brahma was the first created being who spoke to him. Since no one was there, who was the spiritual master to give knowledge? He was the only living creature. Therefore, the Vedic knowledge was imparted within his heart by the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is seated within everyone as Paramatma. Vedic knowledge is understood to be spoken by the Supreme Lord, and therefore it is free from the defects of material understanding. Material understanding is defective. If we hear something from a conditioned soul, it is full of defects. All material and mundane information is tainted by illusion error, cheating, and imperfection of the senses. Because Vedic knowledge was imparted by the Supreme Lord, who is transcendental to material creation, it is perfect. If we receive that Vedic knowledge from Brahma in disciplic succession, then we receive perfect knowledge. Every word we hear has a meaning behind it. As soon as we hear the word water, there is a substance water behind the word. Similarly, as soon as we hear the word God, there is a meaning to it. If we receive that meaning and explanation of God from God himself, then it is perfect. But if we speculate about the meaning of God, it is imperfect. Bhagavad Gita, which is the science of God, is spoken by the personality of God himself. This is perfect knowledge. Mental speculators or so-called philosophers who are researching what is actually God will never understand the nature of God. The science of God has to be understood in disciplic succession from Brahma, who was first instructed about knowledge of God by God himself. We can understand the knowledge of God by hearing Bhagavad Gita from a person authorized in the disciplic succession. When we speak of seeing, there must be form. By our sense perception, the beginning experience is the sky. Sky is the beginning of form, and from the sky other forms emanate. The objects of knowledge and sense perception begin, therefore, from the sky. Persons who are learned and who have true knowledge define sound as that which conveys the idea of an object, indicates the presence of a speaker screen from our view, and 
constitutes a subtle form of ether. So here Srila Prabhupada is saying that if you learn something, there has to be somebody speaking, and there has to be some kind of sound in order for us to learn. And he's going through a, a, an analysis in this first paragraph. What, what technique is he using for his analysis in this first paragraph? What pramana? Anuman. He's using logic. He's saying Lord Brahma was the first created being. There was no one else. But he got instructed from within his heart. Therefore, there must be an a speaker. Must be an instructor. Now, if we look at this word apurusha or apurusheya, what does that literally mean? No person. No person. Not a person. So, why does Srila Prabhupada define apurusheya as not a material person? Yes. Okay. All right, so he's also using here again Anuman. He's using inference and logic that he's already established there must have been a speaker, and a speaker means it must be a person speaking. But if he's not a person, so he's a person and not a person, so he must not be an ordinary person. And he couldn't also be an ordinary person because he exists before the creation of ordinary persons. Now, that particular thing is not mentioned here, but that's another one. And then Prabhupada's going into the idea of hearing from the right source, hearing without defects. So we all have to hear, but what source should we hear from? So I thought I'd go through the defects of hearing and of, of, of empirical knowledge, hearing from empiricists, because it's quite important if we want to go someplace, we're talking about going someplace, we want to get directions from a reputable source, correct? Right? Like Vrinda Sundari and I were doing a program at the college up in Boulder the other day, and we were asking many people, what was it called, the Helen Building? We were asking many people how to get to the Helen Building. And we got all kinds of different directions. And often you could tell just by people's tone of voice and body language that they didn't know what they were doing. The Helen Building, well, you go over there... (laughs) You know, even though they didn't know what they were doing, they were still giving directions. That's cheating. Prabhupada says, if you don't know and you still give advice, then that's cheating. Of course, many times people cheat themselves and they think they know. Isn't it? Right? There are many people who think they know. We have an interesting leader in our country right now who says things like, nobody knows more about the Bible than I do. That was one of his statements. And I thought, well, that, that's quite a statement. You know, I, I just don't believe that that's a factual statement. <laughs> he actually said that. He, something about nuclear, I think he also said that nobody knew more about nuclear weapons than he did. It was a whole list of things where he said he was the greatest authority on the planet. And somebody put all those together and made a little funny video about it. And maybe he believes that. Maybe he believes that nobody knows the Bible better than he does. Or maybe he actually believes that. 
But, you know, on the face of it, that's, that's absurd. There are people who've memorized the whole Bible, and there's people who've memorized the whole Bible in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and can give expositions on every single line in the Bible. Whereas I doubt if this gentleman can even... That's a stretch. But anyway, I doubt if this person can even, you know, list the books of the Bible. So sometimes people cheat themselves, and they think that they're an expert in areas that they're not, isn't it? Right? Like I've mentioned, we have, we have people in our ISKCON society who give lectures on raising children who have never raised a child, never educated a child, never had anything to do with children other than seeing them sometimes. We're going to give you a, a class on how to raise your children. Well, have you ever done it? No. Do you have any children? No. Have you been a teacher? No. Have you actually taken courses in child psychology and child development? No. So, you know, people sometimes have this, this concept of being expert in areas that they're not. And in fact, my friend Rukmini uh, chastised me for that very thing. She said, Ermila, you know, what's your background in hard science? How can you talk about hard science when you don't have a background in hard science? I'm like, oops, you're right. You know, so this is, this is something that's pervasive to the conditioned souls. That we give information, we give instruction on areas that we know nothing about. But one has to have a trusted source. Otherwise, if you get directions from a source that doesn't know what they're talking about, then you'll end up in the wrong place. Of course, nowadays we really trust our GPS, but the police officers have a saying, death by GPS. Have you ever heard of that? GPS isn't always right. And sometimes the GPS will direct people someplace where there's, there's no proper roads and there's, you know, and people won't, they'll actually die out in the desert or something <laughs> by following their GPS. At our new Vrindavan property, there's a sign by one of the roads, don't trust your GPS and go this way. Turn around and go the other way. Because so many, so many times the GPS is giving them the wrong instruction. Right? And I, I think I've given this example here since I've been here, but I give this example a lot. You know, we're told in modern society, and I don't care whether it's America or India or Chile or China or wherever you are, that if you want to be happy, you should go to school. Yes? You should get good grades in school. You should go on for higher education in a hopefully prestigious university. Get good grades there. Get a high status, high paying job. Yes? Were we all told this? Get an attractive, loving, romantic partner. Get a beautiful home, expensive car, good entertainment system, a dog. Let's get a dog. Make some contribution to society, and you'll be happy. Were we all told this? Like, numerous times, directly and indirectly, by practically all of our authorities growing up, unless you grew up in the heart cushion. But does anybody believe this, actually believe it? You know, if you went to the local Walmart and you took a poll of everybody in the local Walmart and asked, do you believe that if you did this, you would be happy, and if you don't do this, you won't be happy? Or is it possible to do all those things and still not be happy? And is it possible to not do any of those things and be happy? Every single, you know, sane, reasonably intelligent human being knows that there's many people who did all those things and still weren't happy. Yes? 
We're not even getting like 95% of people who did all those things, and we're happy. And we know people who didn't do any of those things. Some people who didn't even go to school at all, and are very happy. There's research into what is the happiest country in the world, and it's usually some, you know, third world undeveloped country where half the kids don't even get a basic literacy education. So how's that? So we know that, right? And yet people are still saying, this is what you have to do. So that's cheating, isn't it? Yes? So if we, if we want to achieve a goal, and I think all of us, we would like, everybody would like to be happy, yeah? Anybody here want to be miserable? Uh, we would all like to be healthy and alive, yes? Anybody want to be sick? We would like to know things, we like to understand things, everybody want to understand things. Anybody want to be like stupid and confused? Would we like to achieve our desires or do we want to be failures? Anybody want to be a failure? And so we have these things that we want and it's good to know how to get them. Yeah? Right? So we have to find out what is the proper source. So it's quite interesting because when you get an education, when you're in just you know elementary school and high school, they will tell you over and over again, and of course the television and the books and the magazines will all tell you that if you want to know how to achieve all your desires, then you have to listen to modern science. Correct? Am I correct? Yes? That's what they say. That's what they say, right? In the modern world, are we told that religion is going to bring us everything we want? Is that the general propaganda? Religion is tolerated. You know, we'll tolerate religion for people who are still holding on to old primitive traditions and gives them some sort of solace. But if you really want to know, you have to go to science and empiricism. Yes? Am I correct? Okay. So only the scientists are going to give us the real knowledge about, only the empiricists. So empiricist means somebody who gathers information with their senses and analyzes it with their mind. And who has some conception of an, of an absolute objective truth that can be understood in that way. Another word for this is called positivism. Positivism. Or just if you really want to be very confused, another word for this is modernism. Just that's what that means in this context. So positivism, empiricism, or modernism all means a system of acquiring knowledge by which you use only your senses and logic. And you don't consider anything outside of your senses and logic with the concept that you, there is some objective truth that can be found in this way upon which people in general can agree. So in elementary school and secondary school, we were told that this system of positivism, of empiricism, is the key to understanding. And at an undergraduate level, we were also told this. And at the master's level, we were also told this. And then, all of a sudden, I was in a doctoral class on the philosophy of science, the philosophy of research. And they start off by telling us that empiricism, positivism, modernism is bunk. Now they don't tell you that till you're at the PhD level. Till you get up to there, they keep telling you, yes, yes, this is how you're going to understand everything. That was the very, very first thing our professor taught us were the six defects, probably he was talking about four defects, so the empiricists who actually promote positivism, 
tell you that there's six defects in their own system. And after teaching you that, then they say, but that's all we have, and so that's what we're going to use. Discouraging, huh? And you have to take this class before you go out and research. So before you can go out and do your research, before you go out and do your experiments, you have to learn that all your research and all your experiments are intrinsically flawed. But this is just in-house, you know. This is just in-house among the, the doctoral people. It's not, not, this is not for consumption by the public. For the public, you say, no, no, everything we're doing is, 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 is great, and if we haven't done everything right, then, you know, we'll, we'll get it in the future. So if Rukmini is listening, this is actually something I study. Get on my knees about this. She's probably listening. Okay, so the, the defects of positivism, the defects of empiricism. So first is called the do-in queen or an auxiliary assumption defect. So this problem is that one cannot assign absolute causation between two things. We're constantly told in research you can have correlation, but you can't have causation. That it's extremely difficult, almost impossible, to establish causation. Absolutely. For example, let's say you notice that when there's a fire, there's fire trucks. As you experience, whenever there's a fire, there's fire trucks. Did the fire trucks cause the fire or the fire cause the fire trucks? Did either one cause the other? No. But they come together. When there's a fire, there's fire trucks. But that doesn't mean necessarily that one's the cause of the other. There might be auxiliary assumptions. There might be other causes that you don't know about. And this problem is especially acute when it comes to understanding living things who are very complex. You know, this problem happens in medicine. What causes a particular disease? Or what causes a particular cure? The vast majority of modern pharmaceuticals that cure or help alleviate a disease, the full mechanism of the cure is not known. It's just they notice, oh, this seems to help people with this problem. But they're not sure exactly why. They may have some ideas, but there's not some absolute causation. And of course we know in medicine, how much of the effect of medicine is placebo? A lot, 30% of the action of medicine is placebo. That's even true for surgery. It's even true for surgery. So there's experiments been done where some people got the real surgery and some people they just made an incision and then closed them up again. And often the same percentage of people would get better from the fake surgery and the real surgery. So we don't know what else is going on. And this is, we're going to come back to this theme. We don't know what we don't know. We're not aware of what, of, what we, of what we're not aware of. Which sounds like a tautology. It sounds like circular reasoning. But it means if you're looking at two things that seem to occur together on a pretty regular basis, you, we may not be aware of other possible causes. 
This particular defect also deals with what we call a priori assumptions, things that we're assuming as unprovable truths. All right, then the next is the problem of induction. This is a problem that Shiva Prabhupada talks about quite a lot. So induction means that I've examined that everybody I know of has died. Everyone I know of who's lived, they also die. But maybe there's someone I haven't met who hasn't died. And in fact, the Vedas tell us that there are human beings on the planet that have been living here for millions of years and haven't died. I mean, we have in the Bible instances of people going to some higher realm without, without death. Moses is said to have ascended in a chariot without death. The Pandavas in the Bhagavatam are said to have attained the spiritual world without death, to attain their, the spiritual world in their same bodies. So maybe there's somebody who doesn't die, but you don't know. Now, now please try to understand this very carefully. Let's say that I've examined thousands and thousands of cases of something. And in each of the cases of something I've examined, I can say, this is what happens. But might there be cases I haven't examined? Might there be cases I haven't examined that I don't know about? This is, again, you don't know what you don't know. Do I necessarily know what the total amount is? No. So without knowing the total amount of something, can I even know what percentage of the total amount I've examined? So can I establish a probability of how certain I am? Are you all following this logical argument? If I know there's 200 of something and I've examined 100 of it and the 100 all has certain characteristics, then I can say, well, I've examined 50%. And I can talk about the probability of my being correct for the whole, for the whole group. But if I've examined 100 of something and I have no idea what the total number is, then I don't know what percentage I've examined and therefore I can't really come up with a reliable probability. Just like for a long time, scientists thought that all swans were white, and then somebody went to Australia. So that's the typical example of this given of this. This problem also, this problem of induction, also applies to things beyond the Earth planet. So a lot of science about creation and about astronomy is predicated on the concept that the laws of nature are the same all over the universe. Now, we already know Einstein talked about time working differently in different parts of the universe, but maybe the laws of nature are very different in, in different parts of the universe. I mean, how do we know? Again, we don't, we don't know. So a lot of the assumptions that are made, that's, you know, a priori assumptions, might be wrong. And not, having, not being able to examine directly things that are beyond the earth we may also be making assumptions about life or about matter, about all kinds of things that only apply within our limited sphere. I mean, something like that, however we were brought up, we tend to think that that's the truth. So, there's, there's, I don't know if I should tell the story, but anyway, I'll tell it. So, this is, this is a, a, a story of warning. Anyway, so for the first 10 years or so of our marriage, every time I made strawberry shortcake, my husband would, would say that I had made it wrong. So I would made it, make it with shortcake, strawberries, shortcake, strawberries, whipped cream. And he said it should be shortcake, strawberries, whipped cream, shortcake, strawberries, whipped cream. Now you may ask why I continued to make it that way if he said it was the wrong way. 
Well, be, that was because he came at it by saying it was wrong. You understand? If he had told me any time during those 10 years, I like it the other way, then I would have said, sure, fine, I'll make it how you like it. But because he said it was wrong, you can tell something about my own stupid mind. So therefore, I'm like, no, it's not wrong, it's right. So after 10 years one time, when he was arguing with me about this in the kitchen, he said, but that's how my mother made it. And then I was like, oh, okay, then I'll make it like that. I never argued about it again. But what was really interesting to me was that we tend to think like this. However our mother did it was the right way. You follow? That, that's just the way it is. This tendency is one of the difficulties we face in our very international society for Krishna consciousness. That someone who grew up in one culture is dealing with someone who grew up in another culture and each of them thinks that there's a right way to do things not knowing that it was simply the way they were trained culturally. So similarly, we tend to think that anything in our environment, that's, that's the truth everywhere. What's true for me, what's true in my experience, is true for everyone. In Sanskrit, this is called Atmavan Manyate Jagat. I think everyone is like me. Everyone processes things like me. Everything is like me. And so we may look at some small sample and extrapolate and think this is true for everyone. This problem of induction is, is really a problem in social research. I, I am a social scientist. And social research, social science research, almost always looks at some what we call random sample of a population. So you look at, you know, you just randomly pick 200 people. You have a computer go through the phone book and pull out every tenth name or something. And then you survey them, or you examine them, or something of that nature. But the problem is that how, do you, how does one know that what we call in statistics a random sample is truly random? How do we know that that random sample truly represents every segment of society? You don't. One of the biggest problems with social science research, by the way, is that it's almost always conducted on... American college students. <laughs> Be wary of any research, any social science, behavioral, psychological research that's conducted on American college students. Do you think American college students represent society at large? No. That certainly is not a random sample. We call that a convenient sample. The researcher is in the university and those are the people who are available. So those are the people they research on. There's a number of studies that were done on just male college American students because it used to be most college students were male. And then they found when they replicated the studies with women, the results turned out very different. And this is true not only medically but even psych psychologically. And a lot of research is coming out showing that when you research people in a variety of cultures, you can get a huge variance in your data. That it's not that everybody in every culture responds the same to certain situations or identifies things the same, understands things the same. So one of the big problems in social science research, which is, I suppose, why the hard sciences consider that the soft sciences are not really science, is that when you try to replicate the results, generally the results go away. There's a huge replication area, area in any kind of psychological or sociological research. 
And what the journals do is they publish the first research, the first groundbreaking research. And we found out that things are like this and things are like that and things are like this and things are like that. And then other scientists repeat that experiment. And the more it's repeated, the more the results go away. But those repetitions of the experiments aren't published in the journals because they're not interesting. So people tend to not repeat experiments. Now this relates to another defect. Uh, this defect of that I'm going to understand things through my perceptions and my biases. I'm going to analyze what I found in my research through my own biases. And no one's quite sure why when research is repeated, the results tend to disappear. My, my own theory is that the samples are not random. That the so-called random samples are skewed. And that the more that you research, the more you get people who represent the entire population. And therefore something that showed up in a small sample of the population goes away when you look at the whole population. But another reason is that we understand what our results mean by our particular biases. So one of the, um, you can look this up, one of the experiments that shows this quite strongly was done in 1949 by Bruner Postman. And they took a regular deck of playing cards and then they insert, inserted some anomalous cards. So they inserted like black hearts and red clubs, something that isn't really in a deck of cards. All right, then they showed, this, they showed these cards to people very, very, very fast and asked them to identify the cards. So when people were shown very, very fast for the anomalous cards, they identified them as a regular card. So let's say you saw a red spade, you might say, oh, that's a heart. Or a black heart, you say, oh, that's a spade. So people would pick one. They'd go by more the color or the shape. And nobody was able to identify the anomalous cards as anomalous when they were shown them very fast. And gradually the experimenters slowed down the speed at which they were showing the cards. And for about 75% of the, of the people in the experiment, at a certain point they said, wait, no. What is that? But about 25% never recognized the anomalous cards. Why? Because they weren't expecting them. We tend to see what we expect. We tend to see what our biases are. The concept is that researchers go into research being completely unbiased with no ideas at all and depending on the data that they bring in, they form a hypothesis. But that's not the fact. The fact is that we all have some preconceptions of what we're looking for. In fact, the majority of research is done starting with a hypothesis. You start with some idea and then you go to see if it's true or not. And what we all tend to do is we all tend to ignore data that doesn't fit our preconceived ideas. That's a problem. Because it's not just what we perceive, but it's how we understand what we perceive. So that's probably another reason for this replication problem. 
is that people do an experiment and then they understand what that experiment means through their existing biases. Now, the idea in science is you get rid of this problem of individual bias by having a whole lot of people repeat the experiment. That's what you're told in elementary school when you study the scientific method. You're told, yes, everybody's biased. Yes, everybody is going to have a preconceived idea. So if you have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people repeat the same experiment with many different situations over a large period of time and you always get the same results, you've taken away this personal bias. But as we said, generally experiments are not repeated. The reason that they're not repeated is that if you repeat them, you don't get published. And people are not particularly interested in funding an experiment that isn't going to get published. So often experiments are not repeated, and when they are, generally the results go away. Okay, then we have something very similar, what's called relatively of the light of reason. Relatively, relativity of the light of reason means what's obvious to me is not obvious to others. Have you noticed this in your life? Is this our practical experience? I'll go, this is so obvious. I don't see it. I remember a conversation I had with my mother in the New York Temple where I was trying to explain to her how we're not this body. And she says, well, yes, just like when someone dies, the body's there, but they're not there. I said, yes, see, that means you're not this body. She said, I don't believe that. <laughs> I mean, you know, haven't we all been in very frustrating discussions like this with somebody? We're like, okay, here's the evidence, here's the logic, here you go, and here's the conclusion. No, that's not the conclusion. Right? And have people ever been frustrated with us? Huh? Okay, then there's the social nature of research. Our conclusions are affected by what's socially acceptable in our time. So we have very strong assumptions about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, and how things work according to the social conventions of our time. And again, we tend to take those social conventions as just fact. Like we take the way, you know, the way my mother made whatever, bread, that's bread. And these social conventions change. Yes? Yes? Right? Can everybody think of something like that? Some social convention about what's right and what's wrong that have changed? We talked the other day about that it wasn't that long ago before pretty much everybody was married by 2025. Now that's considered very young. You know, someone marries at 20, they go, oh, it's so young. Having children too. Having, yeah, people are not having children until their 30s. Which, by the way, makes absolutely no sense biologically. Late marriage makes no sense biologically either. But it's become a societal norm. You know, and it, it's really interesting. I see this in, in ISKCON. If, if people are having trouble in their marriage or they divorce and they say, well, it was an arranged marriage, everybody shakes it. go, oh, yeah. <laughs> there were arranged marriages for thousands of years on the planet. And there wasn't much divorce during that time either. So I find it very interesting that people automatically assume that an arranged marriage must be a bad marriage. But that, that's a cultural idea. Of course, a poorly arranged marriage, that's one of my friends called them deranged marriages. 
you know, if you just say, well, you're tall and you're tall. But even our, our understanding of the ecology, you know, how, whether or not we should care about the environment. It wasn't that long ago that, you know, aerial spraying of DDT was considered a wonderful thing for human society. You know that's why we don't have malaria in this country, right? We used to have malaria in the United States. We don't, because of DDT. So how do you want to look at it? Is DDT wonderful or terrible? It depends on, on our social perspective. Depends on what's considered culturally acceptable at that time. Right? And then we have um, the underdetermination of theory by evidence. This means that you can have an infinite number of stories to explain certain data. We know this is true in the realm of crime. So there was a big fat book I read many, many, many years ago about people who were pardoned or exonerated from a crime. They were found to be not guilty. They weren't just like pardoned, but they were found to be convicted wrongly. I mean, some of them were amazing. There was a whole section about people who were wrongly convicted on eyewitness testimony. That basically, as soon as the jury's here, eyewitness testimony, that's it. I mean, there were people who had alibis on the other end of a state. And still, because the eyewitness, not that, that, those were the guys. One of the funniest, well, not funny for them, was a situation where there were four women jailed in different parts of the same state for the same crime. And the actual criminal was still committing the crimes. But all four women who were wrongly jailed and the actual criminal, what they had in common was they were all white, short, and fat. And so the eyewitnesses, just remember, there was a white, short, fat lady. And so all these other white, short, fat ladies were in jail. You, you can look at a crime scene and you can make up a story about the crime. And sometimes the story is wrong. Yeah? Sometimes the story is wrong and the wrong person gets convicted. Does this happen? Yeah, it happens all the time. Have we experienced this in our life? Has someone looked at some evidence that has to do with our life and they've accused us unfairly of something? Who's, who's had that? Who's been ever accused wrongly of anything by anybody in their whole life? That happens a lot with children. Oh, it happens a lot with children. Said, I don't did that. And he's like, no, I don't. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> and then you actually find out that they Yeah, did. it happened to me recently. Someone came to me and said, Ermila, we got some information about what you did. I said, that's not information. I said, that, that's just not information. It's just wrong. Who told you that? Oh, someone who said this. Who heard it from someone who heard it from someone. So yes, you know, we've all had this experience. Or maybe it was our parents who accused us, or our brothers or sisters, or our teacher. I once got falsely accused by a teacher. And I had to go home and do a whole punishment assignment. But it wasn't me. You're the one who did it. No, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. And maybe we've been embarrassed that we've done this to other people. Right? Have we ever done this to other people? Have we ever been sure that somebody did something? Like, completely sure? Look, look, all the evidence is here. I know you've done it. This is what's gone on. And we were wrong. And then we were embarrassed. And we're like, oops. 
So these are six problems of the uh, empiric or inductive way. Well, induction is part of it, or the positive way. So one is you can't always establish causation. You can establish correlation, but not causation. There may be other factors you don't know about. The problem of induction, you don't know what the whole population is. You don't know what the whole amount is. We had the problem of theory-laden perception, that what I perceive is based on my existing theory. The relativity of the light of reason, what's obvious to me is not obvious to others. The social nature of any kind of research, that it's colored by our social ideas at the time and the underdetermination of theory by evidence. That just because you have strong evidence to support your theory, your theory can still be wrong. So, of course, we have to use empiric and positivism, positivistic methods in order to live. We're not, we're not going to be able to go through life without coming to conclusions based on our sense perception and logic and the sense perception and logic of others. And, I mean, we, we do say that science has created many wonderful things. This microphone and televising over the internet and the electric lights and so many wonderful things. We're not denying that, that science has a place and empiricism has a place. Prajaksha and Anuman are bona fide sources of knowledge, but they're not absolute sources of knowledge. They're not absolute. And these sources of knowledge cannot tell us how to achieve our ultimate goal of life. They're useful. It's not that they're not useful. If someone says, well, we're not going to put any stake in sense perception and logic, I don't know how you're going to get through your day. You know, it just, it's just not going to work. It's, that's not very practical. And if you hear any devotees saying that, oh, we only follow Shabda, we don't follow projection, I don't, I don't believe them at all. Even if we're going to follow Shabda, we're using our, we're using our senses. Prabhupada here is using logic, he's using Anuman. It's not like we don't use them. But we don't say that those are absolute sources of knowledge. The only absolute source of knowledge is Shabda is actually hearing from God because he's the only one who really knows everything. And he's the only one who's not going to make any mistakes. He's the only one who doesn't have these problems. Of course, he delights in having these problems in his leela. Krishna delights in his leela of not knowing. What am I going to do? My friends are in Agasura's mouth and if I kill Agasura, they'll die. How do I save them and kill the demon at the same time? So he has fun like that, of not knowing, of discovering. And of course, Krishna is always expanding, so his knowledge of himself is also always expanding. He's always somewhat of a mystery to himself. Just like like we are always somewhat of a mystery to ourselves, right? That's why things like astrology and palmistry and personality tests are so attractive. If you think about it, why why would I be so attracted to hearing about myself things that I already know? But we always want to learn more about ourselves and understand ourselves more. So Krishna is like that also. It's not that because Krishna is the absolute truth and has absolute knowledge that it's all just boring. I already knew that. <laughs> yeah, I already knew that too. I know how that's going to end. Yeah, I, I already saw the end. <laughs> I know how that leader is going to turn out. I know exactly what all these people are going to do. That's really boring, isn't it? By the way, Krishna doesn't know exactly what we're going to do. That would be very boring. Would you like to have a relationship with somebody where you always knew exactly what they were going to do? No. 
We surprise him. That's part of the, the happiness of a relationship. He didn't expect Rukmini to faint. What did he expect Rukmini to do? Argue. But he had to tell her. He said, I expected you to argue. She's like, oh, okay, I can do that. <laughs> he didn't expect the coward boys to go into a gossip's mouth. He's like, oops, what did they do that for? All right, now I've got to figure out what to do. So there's some mystery in, in rasa. And this concept of tattva and rasa is one of the most wonderful aspects of our Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy. On the platform of tattva, we can say, you know, paramatma, he knows everything. Of course, even then, he's always expanding and always learning more about himself, but he knows everything. But on the platform of rasa, Bhagavan doesn't know everything. Daddy, why are you doing the sacrifice? He doesn't know everything. He has to ask. And he gets surprised. Yeah? So that's the sweet, original form of what we struggle with in this world. You know, in this world, not knowing and depending on empiricism and basically only being able to say, well, so far I know it's not false. And never through empiricism can you say, that is true. You can never make the statement in empiricism, that is true. You can never really say, we've absolutely, totally proved this, although I know we did proofs in math. The comedian will talk to me about this later. You can say there's evidence and you can say so far we know it's not false. But there's some spiritual equivalent of this that's just tasty. That's just fun. Where there's some sense of uncertainty. Krishna says he's going to show up at 6 o'clock but he might not. So if we really, really want to know how to be happy, if we want to know how to be full of knowledge, if we want to know how to be full of vibrant life, if we want to know how to be successful, then we have to ask the person who's running the show and not just try to figure it out with our mind and senses. That's the point. If we try to figure it out with, with our mind and senses, we have no surety at all as to whether or not we're correct. We can't, by the nature of empirical knowledge. We, we just can't. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions. Yes? I wanted to ask the so if I will forget. So pretty okay. much we could, we could state that um, this process is more a process of thought or emotion than a process of real action, like let's say like a, a fruitive action. I don't know if I'm making sense. Well, if you look at the definition of bhakti, where Rupa Goswami says shilanam, which means activities, and it's explained that that means both mental and physical. So it is a process that involves physical action, but it's also a process that involves mental action, which includes thinking, feeling, and willing. But it's more like an inspired action, not like an like it's not a action. Right? Yeah. Because it's about relationships. So if you want a relationship with someone, you do have to do something. You have to do some physical action. Whatever kind of relationship you want. You want to be an employee or an employer, or you want to be a friend or whatever. Whatever kind of relationship you want with another living being, you need to do something. But if there's not some intention and emotion and involved there, you're not going to have a relationship. Yeah? Yes? Thank you. Um, I appreciate how you very nicely you know, outlined some of the ways in which empirical knowledge gathering is flawed. 
kind of the four-year authority. Uh, actual authority is, is really the best way to go, especially for matters of spirituality. Um, so if that being the case, uh, if, because you, you kind of been passing in an example earlier, that um, there are certain persons in our movement who are giving uh, classes, or giving instruction on things that they have no personal experience in. Yes. That appears to contradict the principle behind the talk that ultimately was more important than, although not to say that there's no place for personal experience and that they can't flesh out a complex subject, but if there are matters that are spoken of in the Shamsila, and those are studied in the, in the spiritual setting rather than uh, by a slew of persons who may have studied in the material world with their imperfect senses and so forth, would that not qualify a person who studied in that way? Nope. Why not? Because we're not supposed to be parrots with no realization. We're supposed to also speak according to realization. There's a nice story given in the Chaitanya Charitamrita that illustrates this point. So it used to be that uh, people would have debates to understand what was true. Within every field of work, there's supposed to be competition to help things stay at a high level of quality. If there's not competition, quality goes down. So among the Brahminical aspect of society, the Brahminical section of society, there were debates. And the debates were very serious. You didn't just get some plastic gold-painted trophy. But if you lost the debate, you had to become the follower or the disciple of the person who won the debate. So Sankaracharya was going around debating, and becoming his disciple often meant that you had to basically take sannyasa. It was a very serious thing. So he challenged one king to a debate. And interestingly enough, the queen was the judge. So she must have been very, very extraordinary to be able to be a neutral judge on a debate involving her own husband who if he lost would have to take some yes. So that's generally you, you want a judge who's at least technically a neutral party. I don't see how she could have been a neutral party which must have been very highly qualified. It's a very famous story. Prabhupada tells it in a purport in Chichen Charge in YouTube but you can Google it. I mean, it's quite well known. Anyway, so after they debated for some time the wife said to Sankarachari you defeated my husband. She said, but you haven't debated with me, and I'm half of his body. Therefore, you have to defeat both him and me. And the parameters for the debate, for the debate was anything in the Vedas. She says, I want to debate the part of the, of the Vedas that deal with what Prabhupada calls in his purport, the erotic principles. So Sankaracharya said, I can't do that. He said, I took sannyas when I was eight, and I have no experience. He said, give me a month. She said, okay. So he left. And he went into a secluded place with a disciple. He told the disciple to guard his body. He left his body by mystic power, and he entered the body of a king who was dying. So the king appeared to be revived, and Prabhupada said, for one month in the body of a king, he enjoyed the erotic principles. Then he left that body of the king, re-entered his sannyas body, went back to the palace, debated with the queen, defeated her. At which point Prabhupada said she gave up materialistic life. And if you look that up, some places says that she died, some places say that she went and started a, um, an ashram for renounced ladies. So the concept is that we're supposed to also have practical realization. If we don't have practical realization, although we may be repeating something from Guru Sadhu and Shastra, we may not be applying it correctly. 
I mean, one example I ran into was like Chanika Pandit says, until five, uh, then you're very liberal with a child. So I've heard people who've never raised children or taught children under the age of five, they probably had no little brothers or sisters or whatever, they just haven't had experience with young children. And they said, this means until the child is five, you let them do whatever they want. And I, I said, well, that, first of all, you will not like your child if you do that. And second of all, no one else will like your child if you do that. And third of all, if we look in the Shastra, Mother Yasoda didn't do that. We have examples of Mother Yasoda correcting and even punishing Krishna before he was at the age of five. So therefore, you're not applying this instruction properly. You're not understanding what it means. So just because you're hearing something from the right source, if you have no experience with applying that knowledge, if you have no experience with using that knowledge, you're not going to be able to explain it properly. And you may actually harm and mislead people. Sure. I like the reference to the Shankar Charter. That's, that's nice. I appreciate that. Um, I'm trying to understand the nature of realization then because the spiritual realization of, of, of a devotee who's here and practicing. Because we're making a claim, if I'm not mistaken, in this movement that there are persons in this movement who have realization of Krishna and spiritual reality. And that's coming by virtue of their service and purity. Indeed. Um, that's not something that they necessarily have material experience with. It's a spiritual thing. By definition, you can't... But there's still, it's, there's applied and realized knowledge. There's a conversation Prabhupada has with disciples where he asks them, if someone asks you why you have faith, what will you say? Well, what's your experience? And the devotees answered, well, we've heard from Shastra. So Prabhupada said, that is blind faith. He said, what's your experience? What will you say is your experience? And then they said, well, we've heard from you, Shiva Prabhupada. He said, that's okay, but that's blind. What's your experience? What will you say is your experience? Now, if you're talking about experience of Krishna, you're talking about something that's completely on the transcendent platform. But if you're talking about how to raise your kids, or if you're talking about how to have a happy marriage, or you're talking about how to make halva, that's something, you know, please don't tell people how to cook if you've never cooked. Just because you can read the list of, of preparations in the Chaitanya Charitamrita doesn't mean that you can instruct people in cooking. Does that make sense? You, what you can say is, here's a list of preparations given in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, and we can understand that Lord Chaitanya ate these preparations in life. You can say that. So then, to summarize your position, we can, we can uh, theoretically understand material things through hearing Shastra, but yes. to actually uh, be able to effectively deal with the details of them requires actually doing that in practice, whereas with spiritual things such as Krishna and his form in the spiritual world. Uh, no, you also have to have practical experience of application. Same. But then, it's, then implicit in that, isn't it? Aren't you saying that it's impossible to have practical experience of a material thing just by spiritual purity? Um, in other words, is there an example? Would it be possible of somebody by spiritual purity who had some sort of yogic knowledge of things without any direct physical experience? Perhaps. Perhaps there, there are yogis who can understand the nature of things through transcendent vision without ever having to experience them themselves. 
But still, the general principle is, um, among, if we look in the Shastra, the general principle is that you don't instruct others in something where you're not qualified in that field. I'm just thinking historically, are there not many examples of, of gurus who gave instruction to, for example, Rasta disciples who were themselves like Masinasis in various ways? Well, you could give general instructions of principles. But like Chula Prabhupada even said about himself, who had been, he had been a Grahasta for many years, that it was not appropriate for him as a sannyasi to give detailed instructions about Grahasta. That's for different reasons. That's for a different set of reasons. But Prabhupada felt it wasn't appropriate, even though he did have experience. What to speak of someone who doesn't have experience? And Prabhupada would sometimes answer questions by saying, I don't have experience. I mean, my husband told me first time he met Prabhupada in 1970 that he asked Prabhupada what tape recorder he wanted to buy Prabhupada a tape recorder to travel with him. And he asked Prabhupada what tape recorder should I buy Prabhupada said that I do not know. And he said as a, as a fairly new devotee himself that shook his faith and he's like well shouldn't Prabhupada know everything? No. Yes, it's, I, I see it as just very practical humility. You know, when Prabhupada says, if you know Krishna, you know everything, does that mean that a self-realized soul can fix your car? Maybe. Maybe. It is possible to get knowledge in a mystical way. But it is possible. But that's, that's not generally how we operate, and it's not even generally how the sadhus operate. They don't usually work in that way. Like Prabhupada would say, you don't go to your guru to cure your disease, you go to a doctor. And he would say that specifically. You don't go to a guru to cure your disease. Now, if somebody is a self-realized soul, might they be able to cure your disease by manipulation of the elements of your body through their mystic power? Yeah. They very well might. Or at least they are but okay, but if you but but then you have to say it's the see, but theoretical knowledge, if you've never applied it in context, can be very dangerous. I was sitting next to this this woman on the plane coming here, and she was studying all these books of human anatomy, and I was asking, you know, are you study medicine? And she said, Well, I'm getting a degree in, in um, exercise so that I can act as I said, like for physical therapy. She said, Well, I want to work in sports. And she was saying how they study which exercises are applicable to people with which diseases and which exercises are applicable to people who are taking different pharmaceuticals. So if you're taking certain pharmaceuticals, some exercise may make you sicker or, or injure you. And I said, you know, are you practicing with real cases? She said, well, yeah, we have to have an internship. So you would not want that person to advise you just on theory. You want them to have an internship. You want them to work out in the field and actually work with real cases. Because otherwise you may apply things wrongly. You know, so you, you can understand some sort of general principle of truth, but how to apply it in a particular case without experience is almost impossible. How are you going to be able to do that? The relationship to researchers and clinicians. Yeah. But with Krishna consciousness too, how, if you've never chanted Hare Krishna, how are you going to tell people how to chant Hare Krishna? You know, or if, if, if you say, well, I've chanted Hare Krishna for so many years and I have no personal realization of God. I mean, we have kind of a, a, a social 
system in ISKCON where we're all supposed to claim that we have no personal realization of God. But so that's why I found that conversation with Prabhupada had with these disciples very interesting. What he was telling them, if you couldn't tell people about your personal realization of God, why should they listen to you? Just based on something you heard in the scriptures or something you heard from your guru, you have to have some personal realization. But we have a culture in this kind where we're all supposed to deny that we have any personal realization, that we have any personal experience. I understand why we have that culture. I understand where it comes from. I understand its, its function. But it has, it has a, a downside to it. You know, okay, I've been doing this for 15 years, but it hasn't worked for me. It's a little odd, isn't it? Yes? moment in time he knows the future based on what's happening now but that's constantly changing so he always knows the future moment by moment but what he knows of the future is constantly in flux has to be there's evidence for that in the Chaitanya Bhagavad by the way I do have Shastra huh? He's tree kalajat always perfectly at every moment. So in, in, in this particular moment, Krishna knows exactly what all of our futures are going to be. We're on a particular trajectory, each of us. And Krishna knows what the future is as we're on that trajectory. But as we change that, then our future changes, and he knows that. And as we change that, our future knows it changes, and he knows that. He doesn't know that we're, if we're going to change our trajectory. He doesn't no, how could he know that? So we could stay. Then we wouldn't be alive. And then there wouldn't be any fun in our relationship with him. It would really be boring. And there's no free will. And there's no free will. Then there's no meaning to being alive. What does it mean to be alive? It means you're somewhat unpredictable. I mean, just because he knows everything we're going to do doesn't mean we don't have a choice. It's just he already knows what it is. Then how would we have a choice? What would that mean? Anytime Prabhupada was asked this question, he always answered this way. He said, Krishna knows the future in the sense that he knows what the results of what you're doing now will be. He knows if you're doing this now, that's what's going to happen. That's always shifting. Otherwise, we're not alive. What does it mean to be alive? What, what, is, what is the definition of being alive? I can choose constantly. At every moment, I have a choice. I, I could take this and throw it at somebody. Right now. <laughs> How do you know what I'm going to do? 
And that element of surprise is what is what is, is interesting about life. Life is fascinating. Have you ever been fascinated by a little insect? Why is life so fascinating? Because we have free will. We're not totally predictable. You want Christian to be bored? Yeah, I know what everybody's going to do. Is, is, is that the kind of reality? I was under the impression that he, he knows everything and simultaneously he covers himself for his own enjoyment. He already knows what we're going to do, but at the same time he covers himself for his own enjoyment. Is that well, he does that with, in, in Rasa in terms of that he forgets that he's God so that he can enjoy a certain type of very casual, intimate relationship with people. But that's, I mean, we even do that. We do that. If you have somebody who's, you know, they're head of a big company, like Bill Gates or something. I'm sure when he hangs out with his wife, what's her name, Melissa? Melinda? What's her name? Melinda? I'm sure when he hangs out with Melinda, he doesn't think I'm the big Bill Gates. It wouldn't be a pleasant relationship. It's not that he doesn't know that he's the big Bill Gates. It's not that he loses that knowledge exactly. But he puts it off to the side. That it's, it's, it's not in his conscious awareness. Otherwise, the whole relationship would be really awkward and formal. You follow me? So yeah, Krishna puts aside that he's God. Basically, he forgets that he's God. Not in time. He forgets that he's God. Otherwise, it's no fun. And that way, the coward boys can say, I'm stronger than you. And Radharani can say, well, I'm not talking to you. The whole spiritual world is alive. So my evidence, and I'm not going to remember this exactly, but I have it on my computer, is when um, Srivas, I believe, was being harassed by the Mohammedans, by the Mohammedan king, and Lord Chaitanya said, I'll save you. And he said, I'm in the heart of this king, and I can, from his heart, I'll give him good advice what to do. He said, but if he doesn't listen, I always forget what the second one was, he doesn't listen, then I'll do such and such. There's something else he was going to do. And then if he still doesn't listen, then we'll go to his court and we'll ask him to bring out the Muslim leaders, the imams, the fakirs, whatever, and ask them to show their magic. And then I'll show my magic. And he said, I will... And he looked at little Narayani, who was four years old, and he said, Narayani, have Krishna Prima. And she started chanting and dancing and crying in ecstasy. He said, I will show this. And then he will change his mind. So we have three things. I'm going to do this. Now, if that doesn't work, I'm going to do this. If that doesn't work, I'm going to do this. So he didn't know what the guy was going to do. He didn't know how he would respond. If he responds this way, then I'll do this. If he responds this way, then I'll do this. Does that upset your view of reality? Do you want Krishna to know everything you're going to do in advance for the next all of eternity? Is that what you want? Think about that. Is that what you want? Do you want a relationship with someone who's going to know every single thing you're going to do and say and think from now to the end of eternity? Well, you will. 
But whether every living entity will, that, no, he doesn't. You will, for sure. Bhaktisiddhanta says someone who started on this path and has taken initiation, pretty much, unless they commit some maha, 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 Vaishnava Prabhupada, they're going to attain perfection sooner or later. Prabhupada had a disciple who joined with the group that blasphemed Bhaktisiddhanta. And Prabhupada said, he will attain prema only after 10,000 births. But he didn't say never. So, generally speaking, once you've taken initiation, once you've committed to this process, you will achieve perfection. So yes, you will achieve perfection. Krishna knows that. You could refuse. You're not forced to achieve perfection. If you say today, I don't want to go back to God, I don't want to attain Krishna Prema, then you won't. It's not going to force you. And you have the, the ability to do that. You have to have the ability to do that. Otherwise, how are you alive? I don't know of any statement in the Shastra that says all living entities will eventually attain Krishna Prema. If you can find that, I'd be very interested. I do know a statement that Vasudev Dutt asked for the whole universe to be liberated and Lachitanya said, okay. But as far as every conditioned living entity, will they all eventually be liberated? I don't know of any statement to that effect. If you can find one, please let me know. I've looked for it. Yes? Uh oh, did I really like to stir people today? <laughs> I shake things up. Yes. I thought that at the time when at the end of Brahman's day that he will come and think and not like annihilate everyone. Do they know what happened? Okay, so Kalki comes at the end at the end of uh, Kali Yuga and kills a whole bunch of people, and who Krishna kills gets liberated. But that's just on this earth planet. That's not the whole universe. And that's people. It's not the bugs and the trees and the frogs. That's still not all living entities. So, well, let's say someone hasn't said something because it's getting right. Yes? Um, just in regards to... This is kind of a classic question, but I'd like to hear your answer. Okay. Well, that was a classic question, too. That question gets asked over and over. So uh, the question is, how do we know what is the proper authority? And how can we... Uh... Well, that's a very good question. And, of course, that question is asked in the Shastra itself. So where does Arjuna ask this question? This is something we, well, we should all know. It's sort of really crucial. Right? Second chapter. So in the second chapter, Arjuna says, how do I know who's qualified? How does he speak? What is his language? How does he sit? How does he walk? There's answers there. Where else does Krishna describe? Where else in the Bhagavad Gita does it describe? Who's the proper authority? Hmm? In the fourth chapter, the disciplic succession, and who has seen the truth, Tatva Darshan. Where else? In the 18th line, the 18th. <laughs> Maybe indirectly. Chapter 14 or 15? 14. 14. Verses 22 to 25. End of the 12th chapter, he describes who's dear to him, 
And then other verses kind of scattered here and there in the fifth chapter, you know, Pandita Samadarshana. Verses throughout the Bhagavad Gita. And then this whole sections of the Bhagavatam, Kapila Dev is going to be describing the 26 qualities of a devotee, which is described again in the 11th canto. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, when uh, he's talking to Sanatana Goswami, he gives the nine symptoms of Baba. But he says, you can't tell who's on Prema. Do you know why he said you can't tell who's a platform of Prema? He gave two reasons. He says, one, the symptoms can be imitated, and uh, two, they're generally hidden. So people who are actually experiencing Prema generally hide those symptoms, and they can be imitated. But Baba, he gives nine symptoms. Oh boy, I always hope people don't ask that question. How do we know that the Vedas are describing their own history accurately? Well, you can't. There's some degree of trust. Because there's no way that you can ever find out something that's historically distant. Whenever you're looking at anything that's distant in space and time, the methods of direct experimentation fail. So anything that's going back historically a long period of time, you have no way to, to investigate it directly. Does that make sense? It's just not possible. So all you can look at is the people that you know about historically going back several generations. And you can look at the historical records. You know, So we have historical records going back at least several hundred years written historical records. Of course, then you have to believe the veracity of the historical records. It's a problem. So, therefore, the ultimate, the ultimate test of something is what? The, uh, the prophet says in the biggest Christian book, right, you can judge a, a, free by, a true by its sorry, a tree by its fruit. Well, that's what Jesus said to judge by their fruits. The ultimately, you know, Rajavija Rajaguya, Pavitram, Idam Uttaman, Prachaksha, Bhagavan Dharmam, Susukam I like to take that verse as the ultimate statement of, of, of evidence, of proof. So we'll just do this and then we'll stop. So, and anybody who wants to leave and go eat, I, I won't be offended. So, Rajavija. So you'll experience that you're contacting the highest truth. And I think that's something that most of us experience very, very quickly in taking up Krishna consciousness. Not just intellectually, but experientially. That all of a sudden you have the capacity to understand the way the world works and the way things work. Why Yes, that experiences. You know, you start chanting 16 rounds and following the principles and getting up early and eating food that's offered to Krishna and you just, you just understand things. You have this incredible amount of insight and understanding. Rajaguyam, it's very secret. So one's able to understand the essence of things, the, 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 hidden, the hidden aspects of things. Pavitram, you become purified. That's one of the strongest evidences. Like Ravindasura Prabhu said, because that's very objective. Ravindasura Prabhu said that when he first started chanting Hare Krishna, that he just automatically stopped smoking 
And so he said he stopped chanting because he was wondering, I wonder, what am I doing that has this kind of potency that I've lost my interest in smoking? Or one devotee I know who's also a, uh, a Catholic monk and is a secret devotee. So he says what convinced him is that after chanting Hare Krishna for a few weeks, that he was able to give up habits and frames of mind that he had struggled with for decades in other religious practices. So Pavitram, you become purified. You get some material detachment that, that, that just stays and just there. Idamutanam. So prachaksha, you directly experience it. Prabhupada says just like when you're eating food, you know whether or not you're eating, you're eating food. Agamam dharma. Dharma is something that's genuine. It's the genuine intrinsic quality of something. And I always use this example that you can tell the difference between a fresh, tree-ripened, organically grown, locally grown piece of fruit and some chemical juice that is flavored with that fruit. Yeah, we can all tell the difference, correct? Yes? Or if you've grown your own vegetables even, you know, you pick your zucchini or broccoli out of the garden. And the difference between that and something that was shipped from Chile, you can immediately taste the difference. What to speak of something that's a chemical imitation? So dharma, we experience something authentic. And it's quite startling. Because our material experiences are all inauthentic. They're just experiences of the body and the mind, and the soul is just observing. It's kind of like the difference between watching somebody in a movie do something and actually doing it. So when you watch somebody doing something in a movie, you have some kind of emotional experience as if you were doing it. But it's not the same as if you're doing it. It's just not. Yeah? Right? I mean, even, I remember my mother taking us to a 3D IMAX about immigration years ago. And, I mean, you really felt like you were on the boat, you know, and the water goes to splashes and you feel like you're going to get... But you don't feel the water splashing again. There's still a difference between even that experience of a, you know, surround theater 3D IMAX with special goggles and when you actually experience it. So, spiritual things touch the soul. We, the soul, are actually experiencing that. And we, have, we go, wow, what was that? So dharma, it's something authentic. Susukha makes you very happy. Prabhupada said, if you're not joyful, you're not making any advancement. So those, those, that verse for me, 9-2, is, is, a, is a verse that very, very clearly shows the symptoms of am I in touch with something that's true? Am I in touch with something that's real? Sadhguru writes about this a lot. How bhakti is also an experiment, but it's an experiment you do on yourself. So that, that's, there, there really is no substitute ultimately for that. And therefore you can say the ultimate praman is projection. Let's say that an hour from now you meet Krishna face to face. Is that going to necessarily convince me? It will convince you, but it won't necessarily convince me. I have to believe it. Right? You can say, I met Krishna face to face, and I can think, oh, maybe he's schizophrenic. You follow? It might be evidence for me. I know a lot of people in the Hare Krishna movement, sane, sober, 
grounded people who claim to have met Krishna face-to-face. And the fact that they make those claims certainly helps me in my faith, but it's not proof for me. You follow? I don't know ultimately how there's anything else. I don't know how you can prove that the Vedas actually go back millions of years through the civic succession and there was really a Narada Muni. And I don't know. How can you prove that? But nobody can prove any competing truth claims either. We are stuck in a situation where we have to have some degree of faith in something. Sorry. We can offer evidence, we can say. We have this line of civic succession, we have other sources that verify that these were historical personalities and that this happened. There's some archaeological evidence. But the only proof is experience. And that's individual. The proof for me is not... My proof is, for you, evidence. You follow? What is for me a proof will be for you evidence. And what is for you proof will be for me evidence, not proof. My only proof is I have to experience it myself. I didn't tell by the way. And then it's proved to me. I can say this works for me, it's worked for people I know about. Like Krishna says, you know, many, many persons in the past. It makes logical sense. We have a historical record. What's your alternative? Every alternative requires exactly the same kind of leap of faith. Everyone. Whether you're going to believe, you know, mechanistic science or whether you're going to believe some other religion, you still have to do exactly the same thing. And you still have to have some, some faith in things that you cannot test. Like, you know, what's outside the covering of the universe? Is there a covering of the universe? You can't test that. And ultimately, you have to look at, why am I in this process? Why am I in this process? Was that good or bad? Did I mess things up? No. Okay. I mean, where was I? I was at a college somewhere. I don't usually make notes of where I was geographically. It's too, too much to store in my brain. But not too long ago, I was at a college somewhere. Anyway, but I, I say this in general, especially if I'm speaking to people who, aren't, who haven't taken up Christian consciousness. And I'll say that, look, I, I can't tell you objectively from an objective perspective that I could prove that what we're doing is the absolute truth and the highest thing. I can't prove that to you in some, with some sort of objective facts that everybody would agree on. So I believe that it is. But I believe that it is through my experience and also through logical reason. You know, even in Vaikuntha, the residents of Vaikuntha think that Vishnu is higher than Krishna. That's why they're in Vaikuntha, because they want to be there. So we could say it's kind of attraction. 
Yeah. Like if you desire that, then that's what you're going to get. Yeah, and I mean, at a certain point, you may take up Krishna consciousness because you're logically convinced that Krishna is the Supreme Lord, but after a certain point, actually, you don't really care. You might still be able to logically convince other people that Krishna is the Supreme Lord, but after all, it just doesn't matter to you personally anymore. You just like Krishna. And if somebody could come up with another Purana that says Shiva is the Supreme Lord, you're like, well, great for you, Hare Krishna. I'm sticking with Krishna. Have fun. So it, it does get to that point that it just that those sort of arguments are not really very important to your faith. You can still give them to others. Like Prabhupada gives prodigious arguments how Krishna is the Supreme Lord. But that's not why Prabhupada's worshiping Krishna. He's not worshiping Krishna because it says this and this Veda and this and that Veda. That's not why he's worshiping Krishna. He worships Krishna because he loves him. You know, I mean, and, and what, what's my alternative? So is my alternative just to get a lot of money in a big house and a flat screen TV and a dog? Is that my alternative? So I already know that that's not any kind of guarantee of anything. Yes, we all know that, yeah? I mean, not that you can't get a big house and a flat screen TV and a dog. But to think that that's what's going to make me happy, I know that, that, that there's absolutely no guarantee that that's going to that, that I know, that is a sure fact. Yes? That's, that's just a fact. Many people who have all those things are not happy. You ask them, are you happy? No. So, that, that's not going to make it. Okay, what are my other options? Well, okay, I could take some, some path of something that transcends that. Something that's beyond that. Alright, then what are my options? So then you have four basic options. Gyan yoga, Gyan yoga, karma yoga, and bhakti yoga. If you want to put aside the gross cheaters who say, you know, send me your money and Jesus will love you. So if you want to put aside the just absolute gross cheaters, then you're left with the four, there's four bona fide paths. And you can look at any system of religion or spirituality and they're going to fit into one or more of those paths. Now if I look at them, the, the most reasonable path to follow is bhakti from a logical perspective, and from an experiential perspective, which I don't have time to get into now. And then if you're going to look at a personal or impersonal, again, if you want to look at logic, if you want to look at experience, some people are going to prefer the impersonal, and that's available. We're not saying karma yoga, gyan yoga, and gyan yoga are wrong. They're not wrong. They're in the scriptures. We're not even saying impersonalism is wrong. There is the Brahma Jyoti, and you can go there if you like. We're not saying those are wrong. But having looked at those four paths and having looked at the different aspects of God, you know, I think I'd like to go for Bhakti with Bhagavan. Thank you very much. And then of all the forms of Bhagavan, I think Krishna is really cool. That's my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. And that's fine. There's unlimited planets for people who don't agree with me. There's so many Vaikuntha planets. You can think Narayana is cooler than Krishna. That, that's totally fine. We're, we're, we're cool with that. You can like Balaram more than Krishna. I just met a devotee who said, I like Balaram more than Krishna. Okay. 
I mean, Moshe Chandra sometimes told people, why are you worshipping Ramachandra? Why don't you worship Krishna? And some of them switched and some of them didn't. Some of them said, sorry, I like Ram more. And Moshe Chandra says, wonderful. That's okay. Do I believe that what I am following is the highest? Well, yeah, of course. Otherwise, why would I do it? That'd be pretty dumb if I believed something else was higher but I was doing this. But am I convinced that I am objectively right? No. And that's no longer important to me. There was a time that that was very important to me, but now it isn't. I don't really care. It's irrelevant. It's useful when talking to other people that I could explain to them why I, my, my choice is objectively the best choice. But is that necessary? No. Why? I am aware that I'm going to be biased. I'm a living being. I'm going to be biased. And I'm going to think whatever my biased choices is the best. Like, duh, we're all like that. Even in the spiritual world, everybody's like that. The coward boys think being a coward boy is the best. They think, I don't want to be like those gopis. I was crying. Everybody feels that their, their relationship with Krishna is the best for them. All right? Is that Okay. All right, we definitely should end now. People are communicating very clearly with their body language that I should be ending. So, anyway, I hope I didn't disturb anybody. Let's talk about faith and knowledge, epistemology. I hope I'll be invited back to Denver. We're canceling you from the Bhagavatam class schedule. And you're shaking everybody's face. If you want, I can give you that evidence in the Chaitanya Bhagavatam. Just give me an email or something. Rob, what can you do?